Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Almost 20 billion times each year, a person walks into a doctor's office and becomes a patient. Utah doctor Kevin Jones says that physicians can't tell you what they don't know. They can tell you when they don't know, but they might not. Dr. Jones, in his book, What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine, says there's a code of silence within which too many physician-patient conversations take place. His goal, he says, is to help you learn to talk to your physician, how to understand what he or she says, and then to help you ask your physician to invite you more fully into that privileged space where decisions are made, not as subject alone, but as the interested party. Dr. Kevin Jones is an orthopedic surgeon and scientist at Huntsman Cancer Institute and Primary Children's Medical Center at the University of Utah. Is my guest for the hour following the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. I'm Tom Williams, Access Utah coming right up. But I wanted to get a couple of comments from our Facebook page on the Ag-Gag bill to you and give you a chance to comment on our website or on our Facebook page. Uh, you uh, probably saw in the news 200 protesters gathered on Saturday to denounce Utah's so-called Ag-Gag law. And uh, we asked on our Facebook page, what do you think? Should the Ag-Gag bill stay or go? Is it right for people to film slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants? Here's what Erin Brewer wrote on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio. It should go, she says, talking about the Ag-Ag bill. All the food producers I know who are confident with their process and product welcome people to come and see their establishment. What are the meat producers hiding that they need a special law to protect them from consumers? Then Teresa Allpress writes in, we should not be making laws to protect industries from consumers. So what do you think? Uh, should the Ag-Gag bill stay or go? Is it right for people to film slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants? You can respond on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio, or via email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can respond as well to uh, today's program at upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As we all intuitively know, conversations between a doctor and a patient are some of the most critical conversations we'll ever have. And yet, as uh, I think uh, many of us have experienced, those communications uh, can be difficult, and a lot of times we don't get it right. It's on the side of the physician and on the side of the patient as well. And uh, Dr. Kevin Jones is an orthopedic surgeon and scientist at Huntsman Cancer Institute and Primary Children's Medical Center at University of Utah. He's written a new book, What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. He writes, spoken words, unspoken words, they're equally powerful. When physicians leave blanks, patients fill them in. Some hear promises, others hear threats. And his goal is to improve doctor-patient communications. He believes that uh, the problem is dishonesty and that educated and empowered patients working with honest, honest physicians can fix problems in medicine. Dr. Kim Jones uh, joins us from uh, Salt Lake City. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Uh, first of all, uh, your background, um, you, I assume, like uh, many people in medicine, had this desire for, for quite a long time? 
I I had this desire for quite a long time. Yeah, that it's been at least in in the list of options from the very beginning, I guess. In your book, you talk about the profession. You you say that uh, of all professions, people in this profession probably the high, highest percentage of earnest people just trying to do good. Very few charlatans in in the in the field of medicine. Yeah, I I, I really think that there are few professions that have as many people really trying to do the right thing. You know, certainly, there are some people motivated to go into medicine for the wrong reasons. They like some lifestyle associated with it. They, they like the money associated with it. But that's really a minority. I mean, most people that go into medicine go into it because they really want to help people. They want to learn skills that are going to enable them to you know, help people's lives out. And uh, perhaps one of the reasons for this is uh, people know going into medicine, you've you got to go to school forever, and, and it's long hours, and it's pretty difficult work. It is. It, it, it is a, a rather grueling academic track. I, I think people always are aware of how many years it takes, but uh, more than anything else, it, it, it really is a, a sacrifice of hours within those years. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're in, in medical school, um, you're literally studying almost all the time. I mean, it is more than a full-time job, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and then during your residency years, despite the fact that work hours, restrictions, and everything like that makes things a little bit more palatable these days, still residents spend all their time doing their residency. I mean, between taking care of patients in that time and studying in their free time, it, it really is sort of all they do for a number of years. You give up your hobbies. You give up a lot of your friends, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you make up those friends later, but but there are a few years where you kind of disappear from most of the things that are fun. You got an undergraduate degree in English literature at Harvard. I did. And so you always felt that you, you'd want to write at some point? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, certainly my, my English literature degree was mostly focused on analysis of poetry. It wasn't creative writing or anything like that. Um, I, I think I have always enjoyed the power of words. And, and so certainly I have always written things. This is the first time I've ever undertaken writing a book. Mm. Uh, and you are a surgeon. You, uh, you, you write in your website. By the way, uh, more information uh, at uh, doctorscannottellyou.com is the, is the author's website here. Uh, orthopedic surgeon uh, performs surgeries to remove bone and muscle cancers called sarcomas, rebuild limbs in both children and adults. Uh, and uh, as we all know, these are high-stakes conversations that uh, doctors and patients have, perhaps even higher stakes when they come to you. But I'm sure you hear the word uh, Huntsman Cancer Institute, going to go see Dr. Jones there. That, that, <laughs> that makes it even higher stakes. Well, it certainly, it certainly frightens people. What, what's somewhat interesting about my practice is that I, I take care of an extremely rare form of cancer, these sarcomas. And so they're so rare that most physicians in the community, excellent physicians, never see them. I mean, they might see them once in a career. And so most patients come to me without having a firm diagnosis. You know, so in, in many parts of cancer care, a patient really only arrives at the cancer center after they've been firmly diagnosed. They've already had biopsies and all these things, um, often by their community physicians. But in my specific niche field, Really, they come when someone suspects they might have one of these types of cancers, most of the time. They'll come and have lots of uncertainty, I mean, <laughs> dripping in uncertainty. And luckily, most of the patients that, that come to me don't, in the end, have cancer. We do some tests or we review some of their imaging or things like that, and we find out that they don't, and that's, 
it ends up being a, a, a happy, <laughs> happy conversation. But there's no doubt that, uh, that others are, are more difficult. And there's, there's nothing more dramatic to me than teenagers with cancer, and not only teenagers with cancer, but teenagers with cancer that's going to require a surgery that's going to change their life. It's going to change their limbs. It's going to change their ability to move around and do things. And so these, these are pretty, pretty dramatic, even melodramatic, um, some of the situations that I find myself in in my particular practice. I wonder if I could have you uh, read uh, just the first part of the prologue. It's yeah. very interesting. Uh, you you say you've only been fired once. <laughs> this is <laughs> yes. this is that this is that story. Maybe just starting the prologue and then over the page uh, to uh, you know to where the the paragraph break is there. Sure. I've only been fired by a patient once. I think I know why. I remember Carl sitting there in the clinic room. He pressed his lips so firmly together that they blanched. His frustration was palpable. Although we faced each other, he no longer really looked at me. His eyes focused on a point beyond my shoulder. I was losing him. Radiation begins next week, I said, reluctantly rising to leave the room. I'll give you a call a week or so after that to see where you are on this surgical decision. That's fine, he answered flatly. But it wasn't fine. It was anything but fine. I called him two weeks later. Before I could say anything of substance, he asked, quietly, what do you think about a second opinion? I think it's a great idea, I said. I doubt anyone will have any different options to offer, but another surgeon will see your options differently. A new perspective may help your thinking. I'll set up an appointment for you with my partner. Why didn't Carl want to see me again? I was, he told my partner, the guy who told him he might lose his leg. Just so. I was the guy who told him he might lose his leg. What I also told him was that he might prefer amputation to the option that might save his leg. I don't know if you heard that part. Carl wasn't unhappy about anything I knew or didn't know. What I had or hadn't done didn't bother him. What I told him troubled him. Should I not have told him? Hmm. And there's the question. It's about the communication. It really is, and, and, and I think that the biggest challenge we have in medicine is that we have a great difficulty talking about the things we don't know. And it would be fine if we really knew as much as everyone wanted us to know, <laughs> but we don't. And so we will be talking about things we don't know, and, and we have difficulty every time we encounter that. I wonder if you'd uh, just briefly tell me the, the other couple of stories that are in the prologue. By the way, you can find the prologue uh, at the website, uh, doctorscannotellyou.com. Uh, many other stories, of course, in this book. And we're talking with uh, Dr. Kevin Jones, who's an orthopedic surgeon at Huntsman Cancer Institute uh, and uh, Primary Children's Medical Center at University of Utah. He's written a new book, What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. It's about uh, critical communication between you as patient and your doctor, and in fact, at the end of each uh, chapter, there are uh, suggested uh, questions that you can uh, ask your doctor to improve that uh, communication. But uh, it's very interesting in the, in the prologue, uh, Carl, the, the only patient that ever fired you, uh, there's also, uh, I made a little bit of real cl- but glancing reference to this, uh, Josh. Yeah. You tell me about Josh, and th- this, is, this is where I guess that some words just carry so much weight. Well, it's true. I mean, so, so what's, what was incredible about Josh is, so here's this, you know, young adult who's referred to see me before even speaking to the referring physician. So he goes into um, a sports medicine clinic, 
and gets an MRI before his visit with, with the physician. And the physician sees the MRI and sees something worrisome on it and decides, you know, he's not, he just wants to save him the cost <laughs> of, of seeing an extra physician and says, you know, I think you should just go directly and see Kevin Jones at Huntsman Cancer Institute. And so his receptionist hands Josh a Post-it note as he walks into the waiting area. And the Post-it note has my name and Huntsman Cancer Institute. Now, truth be told, this physician did not think that Josh had a cancer. He thought he had what was a benign tumor. But that conversation never happened. What just happened was a Post-it note saying my name and where I practice. But just the fact that cancer was in the name of the place where I practice, he, he lost it. I mean, he literally went out to his, his truck, tried to call his dad, you know, is, is a grown man, you know, lost in tears, basically, um, all because of the word. And, and I think that, that, you know, the C word, cancer, is so powerful to people that, that it really, it frightens them, even if it only associates with the place where someone is going for a visit. And, and it's, it's that powerful of a word as a single word, it can really change the entire conversation. And I don't know what, uh, what could have been done different, uh, differently. Because you do, you do work at Huntsman Cancer Institute, you know? <laughs> exactly, I do. You know, I, I, I still think at some level what might have been better about that, and, and actually, you know, Josh and I have talked about this, is even a two-minute conversation with that physician. You know, making it clear, look, there are a couple things I'm worried about. I'm sending you on to this other physician because he's going to be better at sorting out these problems, but, you know, I, I, I am not saying that you have cancer and sending you to this place. Those conversations surprisingly don't happen. <laughs> you know, we get a lot of patients that are referred, many of whom do not have suspected cancers. They just have benign growths or something that, that, that someone wants sorted out. And yet that slight lack of a conversation really, really hampers them. I mean, they just, they come in terrified. And that's great when they get there and we can say, no, no, this is, this is okay. But they've lost sleep for two weeks waiting mm-hmm. for it sometimes. Yeah, the, these are, are very high stakes. I wonder if that, does that wear on you as a physician, especially working in, in the field of cancer? Uh, your, your, your patients come in especially stressed. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, because, I, because I treat cancer, you know, friends and neighbors are always saying, you know, how in the world, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get through telling a teenager they have cancer or parents of young children that their child has cancer? And, and I always say, you know, th- those are not my most difficult conversations. My most difficult conversations are the conversations where we don't know. You know, where someone comes in and they might have cancer, and we're going to, you know, order some tests or we're going to you know, get some imaging or we're going to do a biopsy before we know. So there's going to be a waiting period. Those are the most difficult conversations because I don't have concrete answers for them. By the time I tell someone a diagnosis of cancer, that comes along with it, you know, schedules and appointments and protocols, all these sort of very concrete things to hang on to and sort of stabilize emotionally. But when someone comes in before we have a diagnosis, those are the really heart-wrenching conversations because I have nothing concrete to tell them. Hmm. And without anything concrete to tell them, it's, you know, it, it's a very almost empty conversation. It's, it's okay, you know, we're, we're going to do our best to sort this out and try to assure them of that. What I find interesting in those conversations is that it is extremely tempting to say more than I know. And I think that that problem is not unique to cancer. That problem is 
throughout medicine, we fill in blanks between what we know, trying to look confident, trying to look, you know, knowledgeable for patients. And, and I don't think that, that any of that is, is an intent to be dishonest, not at all. It's an attempt to be comforting and to be consoling and to be confident. Uh, the dedication is interesting. That gets us into it a little more of this uh, conversation about honesty and dishonesty. You dedicate it to your father and to your patients. Yes, yeah, to, to, to my father who taught me that it is most important to be honest when it is least convenient, and my patients who provide many opportunities to test this principle. So what you were talking about before, there, there are temptations for physicians to try to fill in the blanks, or perhaps to leave blanks where they, that they should be filled in, and, and, and you use the word dishonesty. Yeah, you, you know, I, and, and I don't think that this is an intended dishonesty. I, I really don't. I mean, as I said, I, I really think that physicians as a group are a very well-intentioned group. Um, but the problem is that when you take a really messy, you know, reality, and you simplify it down into very black and white, simple bullet points, as we often do in our very dogmatic conversations with patients, there's no way that you can avoid some element of dishonesty creeping into that because it, the things are simply not that black and white. They're not that, that dogmatic or confident. And so when we do that, it, it, it has to include an element of, of really fuzzing over the, the messier reality. And that's very hard to do, isn't it? Because this is this such high stakes. You, uh, and, and in many cases, it is well-intentioned. You want to protect the patient. You want to reach out to them. Uh, but it, it comes out wrong. It comes out wrong, yeah. You know, as when we are just brimming with confidence about our technology and our medical know-how, it's all great until something doesn't work. And then you either have a patient at home feeling totally alone, banging their head against a wall, saying, you know, my doctor told me to take this medicine, and I keep taking it, and it doesn't seem to be doing anything for me, but, you know, they're the doctor. They must know, you know. And, or you get the realization on the physician's part that something isn't working, and sometimes it's an, it's an almost emotional 180-degree reaction against it. I mean, the, the perfect example... In the, in the sort of bigger picture of medicine is hormone replacement therapy. You know, this was handed out like candy in the 1990s. As if everyone needed it. It was the great fix for so many things that ailed women going through menopause. The problem is that in 1999, when this big study came out to show that indeed some of the things that medicine was promising with the use of these drugs were actually the opposite of reality. So instead of reducing the risk of some diseases, it actually increased the risk when they really measured it. What was fascinating to me about that is that here, where medicine had been so confident and so much you know, selling its, its wares, then when they realized that it was wrong, they retracted. And they retracted to such a degree that in the next 10 years, hardly anyone was put on hormone replacement therapy, where that's actually a useful medicine for certain diseases. And it was no longer considered available for those diseases in the aftermath of this 180-degree turn on how good it was. But what's interesting is, is we're talking about tiny risks. I mean, it's not like this was killing gazillions of people. It was just different than build. 
And so because it was different than build, we reacted almost you know, emotionally to it uh, in a way that didn't make sense. And so confidence is great, but when we're wrong, it causes all sorts of problems. If you just joined us, we're spending the hour with Dr. Kevin Jones. He's an orthopedic surgeon and researcher at Huntsman Cancer Institute and Primary Children's Medical Center at University of Utah. His new book is called What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. Dr. Jones's purpose is to improve those critical communications between patients and doctors. And we'll get into uh, some suggested uh, topics and questions that he has uh, that you can ask your physician and uh, some advice on, uh, on how to improve that communication and uh, thereby improve your participation in your health care. We'll hear some stories as well. I'll, I'll get Dr. Jones, if he's willing to uh, talk about Robert. Uh, we talked about Carl earlier, who fired him. Robert, uh, he holds out as an example of uh, someone who, because Dr. Jones uh, outlined all of the uncertainties, uh, trusted Dr. Jones in a very critical uh, situation. Many other stories to tell as well. We'll be back following a brief break. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. We're talking with Kevin Jones, who's an orthopedic surgeon at Huntsman Cancer Institute and uh, Primary Children's Medical Center at the University of Utah. His book is What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. He is urging physicians and patients to be more honest in their communications. He believes that will improve uh, medical field. And uh, throughout the book, many examples, many stories uh, from uh, patients that he has encountered should... Uh, Hasten to add that uh, he's provided different names for these patients, <laughs> lest you uh, worry about going into Dr. Jones and uh, and <laughs> having your uh, information kept confidential. Different names on this. And also, Dr. Jones, uh, no conclusions to these stories. Yes. I, I leave out the conclusions w- with a very specific purpose. Um, first of all, it, it is part of the way to keep these patients protected in terms of keeping them anonymous. But it's also that this book isn't about, you know, the specific medical decisions that are made in these, in these specific stories. It's about the process. It's about the conversations that happen. And so I, I, I leave out the ends of the stories because I really want people to pay attention to the process, to the conversations, to the way that medical decisions are made and the space in which those medical decisions are made, not to which specific topics I happen to cover in these stories. I wonder if you could tell us the story of uh, Ewan and his mother from the prologue. And yes. this is an example where you, you left something unsaid that maybe you, maybe you should have said. Absolutely. So that, that was, that's, that's an almost painful story in, in retrospect, as I, as I look back on it. Um, so here is this you know, single mother of a young boy who's diagnosed with a bone cancer. And if we make the diagnosis, I, I call her. Um, to let her know that we have the final pathology and that it is confirmed and that you know, Ewan does indeed have a bone cancer and that they'll be coming in the next day to meet with the chemotherapy docs and, and really get started on chemotherapy. Well, it so happened that, that that next day I was in the operating room all day, so I didn't really get to meet again 
with Ewan and his mother until very late. It was almost midnight when I finished um, with my surgical cases for the day. But I wanted to stop by the room and just check how they were doing. They were admitted for chemotherapy at this point. So I go by the room, and I'm, I'm speaking with this mother, and I realize that she has, number one, memorized the entire protocol week by week that she's been given by the chemotherapy doctors. And so she, she knows what's happening this day and that day and this day. And when I sort of shrug my shoulders as, as she tells me, you know, what, what day the surgery is going to happen on, and I sort of say, yeah, it's, it's usually about then, she loses it. I mean, she, she's, she's just saying, wait, you know, uh, this is what the protocol says. And I try to explain that, well, you know, the protocol is, is a rough guideline, and we do our best to stick with it, but it's not perfect. And then she explains to me that she is trusting so much in this protocol. She is trusting the life of her boy in this protocol. She knows it's going to be difficult. She plans on quitting her job, moving in with her parents, and really you know, going whole hog to try to get this protocol right because she knows that if she does all that, she'll be able to keep her Ewan safe. And, you know, I didn't stop then and say, whoa, that's not exactly correct. Yes, you should be, you know, attendant to this protocol. You should follow it as closely as possible. But following it is not going to necessarily keep your kids safe. And, and following it as perfectly as you can is still going to leave you with this, you know, very high rate of not being successful in the end. And, again, what she had heard in her conversations earlier that day with the chemotherapy docs was that, you know, the difficulty of, of attending to this protocol, of keeping it all straight, of getting it all right, was, you know, what was the, the gray area. <laughs> getting it right in terms of the protocol was a guarantee, if you could manage it, that your kid would be safe. And, and you know, I didn't correct her. I, I, I stayed silent on that. And it's one of those things that sort of haunts me a little bit. You know, I don't say it in, in the story, but, but Ewan, in the end, did not survive his cancer. And I, I think back on that conversation quite a lot, and I just think, you know, should I, have, should I have been more clear? Should I have crushed her hope right then and there and said, wait, you know, we are, we are you know, making promises that we can't really make in this protocol? And that's a very hard decision because uh, you, you don't want to crush hope. Uh, on the other hand, maybe that is the best thing. You know, it's, it's interesting. It, it's, it's, I think, a balance. And I think it's a balance for, for every patient, every physician. And, and that's, that's why really I think the goal in all of this, the goal in this book, is to change the way that patients perceive their physicians. I, I think that too often physicians are placed up on a pedestal. You know, it, it's often said that, well, physicians, you know, have a God complex. They, they think that they're minor gods. But I think that many patients think that we are, too. <laughs> you know, that, that comes from both sides. And my whole goal with the book is to, is to say to patients, invite your physician down from the pedestal. Realize that this is a person who has certainly human fallibilities, but is also dealing with a fallible science. And invite that physician down from the pedestal so you can have more of a dialogue, more of a conversation, less of a dogmatic this is the way it is, and this is what we're going to do. Because what information is being transmitted is never as perfect, tidy, clear as you think it is. 
You talk in the book about um, this idea, and you were just talking about it right there, of uh, physicians in a priesthood. And uh, that's sort of a perception that uh, some patients have, that uh, this is mysterious, I'll let them handle it, and, uh, and, and they'll make the decisions for me. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think, I think it, is, it is a common problem. Back in the day, you know, before medicine could do anything, that was all medicine was. Medicine was, was a, a group of people who could comfort ill patients. You know, that was it. I mean, we didn't have anything technical to offer. In these days, we often have incredible technical things to offer. But that sense of it being mystical, of, of there being some magic about medicine, is still there. And, and I think it, it can be very dangerous at times. You know, um, talk to your priest about, about priestly things. Don't talk to your doctor about those things. You know, talk to your physician about, about what is technically known and what is technically unknown. Um, but... As soon as that conversation becomes extremely one-sided and it becomes, you know, you're going to the physician who has all the answers, that gets very dangerous, I think. Hmm. You also write in the book about, uh, you had uh, sort of this, uh, this is a version of this idea before you cut into your first cadaver, uh, the, sort of the, yeah. the, the mystery of the skin. And, and once you breached the skin, you, you were a little disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, you, you've, I'm sure you've cut your finger before or cut yourself shaving or something like that. And, and I had this perception growing up that, that you know, beneath the skin was just this sort of well of blood. <laughs> we were just a bag of blood underneath our skin. And, and I knew from physiology class and everything like that that, that, that that wasn't precisely true. There wasn't enough blood in the body to do that. But nonetheless, any little cut you get just bleeds profusely. So much so that you can't even see the tissues inside. Well, what was fascinating is, is you know, you sort of think you're going to get all these answers in medical school, and, and the first big, you know, class draped in all sorts of, you know, honor and glory and all these things is going into anatomy class. But you go into anatomy class, and, well, the bodies are drained of blood. <laughs> they're, they're these sort of gray, embalmed, frankly, stinky um, bodies, and and. It, and there's no blood there, and so that, you know, didn't, didn't get it answered there. And then I thought, well, once I see actual surgery, then I'm going to see, you know, this magic of how you get past this lake of blood. Well, it turns out that it's not so magical. I mean, you just cut the skin and pull it apart, and if you make a big enough hole, <laughs> unlike a nick shaving, unlike, you know, a small slice in a finger, the bleeding just stops on its own. And most tissue planes aren't that bloody, you know, Certainly, surgery is a little different these days than it used to be before we had electrocautery. But even without electrocautery, there are some surgeries that we do where we, you know, make a foot-long slash and pull the skin apart, and the bleeding just stops on its own. And so it was almost a letdown, <laughs> you know. I thought, well, this great magic that I'm going to figure out in medicine, and there wasn't any magic. It, 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 it is just a very practical you know, fact that the body isn't that bloody. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to demystify this for the patients as well and, and engage them in this dialogue. Absolutely, because I, I, I think here's, here's an image I've thought of recently. Think of a conversation between a patient observing as an audience and a physician who is presenting his wares as a salesman that are behind him, and his wares are medicine. 
And those wares are messy. They have all sorts of blemishes and blights. There are all sorts of errors in them. He's standing in front of them so that the audience, the patient, can't quite see them. And he's presenting them with great confidence as a salesman. That is exactly what I think happens too often in medicine. And I don't like that. I don't like that image. I don't like that that happens so often. My preference is a physician and a patient standing next to each other, observing this thing called medicine in all its blemishes, and the physician pointing out where the blemishes are as a teacher instead of as a salesman. And, and, not, and I'm not commenting on the, on the fact that medicine is paid for. This is not a political thing. But if we look at it honestly, and you find a physician who can teach you how he or she is thinking about things, I think it changes things dramatically. If you are a good student, you will ask your teacher questions. And I feel like somehow when people approach medicine and their physicians, they don't ask questions. And that's crazy. <laughs> and, and people always say, well, I, you know, I could never ask. I, I mean, I'm so afraid I'd offend them or they'd abandon me or this or that or the other. I, I, I'm afraid to ask questions. I think if you really knew how fuzzy the knowledge at best was in medicine, you'd be afraid not to ask questions. Is there a danger of you, I don't know, I don't want to use the word sell, but if you explain this uncertainty to a, to a high degree, that people lose confidence in medicine? Absolutely there is. Um, it, but what's happening in the absence of that is that people are losing confidence in medicine without those things being explained. You know, it, so many people are disillusioned and disappointed with medicine. And I think that some of that comes from the fact that it has been presented to them with such confidence and with such, you know, black and white dogma that then when it doesn't work, they say, wow, you know, there must be something wrong with me or wrong with the physician or something, and they get disillusioned. So, I mean, it's a huge majority. I mean, I, back few years ago, it was over 70% of Americans have used alternative health care, you know, and that may just be using herbal supplements or it may be, you know, acupuncture. I mean, there, there are a variety of things, and these are fine. I'm not, I'm not slamming people who pursue that, but I think many people pursue these alternative medicines because they're disillusioned with scientific-based medicine, and the challenge is that they're going <laughs> to they're going to face even more uncertainty in many of those fields. And, and I think that if, if a better conversation had happened in the first place, they might be less surprised when things go badly in medicine. We're talking with uh, Kevin Jones, who's an orthopedic surgeon at the Huntsman Cancer Institute and uh, Primary Children's Medical Center. He's also a researcher, as uh, many uh, articles uh, published, uh, and uh, has written a new book, What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. It's about improving that critical conversation between uh, physicians and patients. Coming up uh, in the next segment, we're going to uh, get into some questions that Dr. Jones suggests you ask your physician, get into some nuts and bolts of improving that conversation, and uh, that's uh, that's coming up. And uh, before we take a break, uh, Dr. Jones, I wonder if you would uh, read us a portion uh, from the epilogue. This is a very interesting interchange, which you hold out as a, I guess, what, what you're trying to uh, get people to do. This is with Robert, and uh, this is on page uh, 253. Yeah. 
Uh, first of all, uh, just starting uh, at the uh, first full paragraph and to the end of the page, first of all, maybe uh, set this up, but uh, introduce us to Robert. Right. So, so Robert is an, an older gentleman. He was 82 when I met him. He had a very large cancer in his pelvis bone, um, above his hip and below his spine in the pelvis. And we had considered all sorts of options, but essentially, you know, the only good option we had was a massive surgery, I mean, a 10-hour surgery to remove this tumor. The challenge was that Robert, while he was pretty healthy, he still golfed, he still worked as an attorney, um, he still skied, downhill skiing, uh, he, he had a bad heart, and he had had a heart attack almost a decade earlier, and he had some atrial fibrillation, which means an, an irregular heartbeat, which really elevated his risk for this surgery. And so th- this was a you know, th- this was a, a very difficult decision for him to make, and, and here's how we sort of uh, went toward it. So the medical oncologist in our conference doubted that Robert's heart could tolerate any meaningfully powerful chemotherapy. He preferred not to use lighter duty regimens unless pushed to do so by the appearance of metastatic nodules to the lung in the future months. Our radiation oncologist considered radiation similarly ineffective as an isolated treatment for a bone sarcoma. The other surgeons agreed that, while high risk, surgery offered the only chance of curing him of the cancer. Robert and I met again a few days later to exchange the external opinions each had obtained, mine from the conference, his from the cardiologist. His wife and son accompanied him for support and to ask their own questions. Accustomed to high-stakes real estate negotiations and judgments, Robert asked measured but insightful questions. With a brief twinkling wink of his eye, he hesitated, then noted, I'd like to live, but I'm prepared for the alternative. His hesitation came not from emotion or even fear. He had stopped to glance at his wife, who he knew was most concerned with the alternative. Judging that he understood both his situation and quantitative decision-making better than most, I gave him my best guesses at percentages acknowledging that they were guesses only. We weighed every potential scenario, from doing nothing to doing a 10-hour surgery to remove his tumor. He had had brought the news from his cardiologist that while the atrial fibrillation wasn't previously detected, it had resulted from his heart muscle being damaged uh, and tired from injuries sustained nearly a decade earlier during his heart attack. His heart rate was well-maintained and ought to be kept so during any surgery, but no other heart intervention was likely to improve his recognized moderate surgical risk. In response to this, I quoted him the highest perioperative risk of death that I have ever quoted to anyone who had anything other than an immediately life-threatening compilation of injuries. The chances are in my favor, albeit slightly, he concluded. Yes, I agreed. Then let's do it. So it seems like a, an extraordinary patient, and, and he's accustomed to high-stakes negotiations and decisions, but still, you see, you quoted him the highest perioperative risk of death that you've ever quoted at anyone. Is that because he had it or because you felt he could take it? That's because it, it was real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, here, here was a man with, with a sick heart who was going to have a massive operation and 10 hours of operating in, in one of the deepest cavities of the body around the pelvis. Pelvis surgeries can be extremely bloody, um, and they're very dangerous. They're very dangerous in fully healthy people. Um, but they're very dangerous, you know, to the order of, you know, maybe 1% in, 
you know, mortality around the, the month of surgery for a healthy person, but his was much, much higher than that. And, and, and essentially, I, I just felt here was someone who had lived a good life. He was happy. He was okay, even if it came to my saying, we can't do anything. I mean, th- this was not someone who was desperate. He was saying, I'm 82. I'm happy. I'm happy with my life. Have great grandkids, few great grandchildren. You know, life is good. If I did nothing and I had this was my you know ticket out of here, that's okay. But if I'm going to do something, I want to make sure I'm making a wise decision. And I think sometimes we do things because we can. And this was a case where I really, really wanted to avoid that, you know, what we call technological imperative. Because we can, we must. I wanted to make sure that we made a measured decision. And, and so I did my best to help him understand my best guesses at, at the numbers, my best guesses at, at what his likelihood of getting through this was, what his likelihood of, of having this surgery actually you know, rid him of cancer in a way that wouldn't come back. Um, you know, I don't, I don't say it in the book, but Robert is alive today and is doing well. But mm. that was not at all a sure thing. <laughs> that, that, that has as much to do with, you know, things that neither of us could control as, as that decision. And the trust that he had in you came into play later on when you're about to do the surgery, yeah. right? You, you write, you, you entered the room... And you didn't you didn't see what you wanted to because uh, of a comment uh, resident I think it made. Yes, his whole his whole family, especially his his poor wife, was just completely freaked out because this resident had basically freaked out. <laughs> the resident had come in the room not fully aware of all the details and sort of read from the chart as he walked into Robert's room on the day of surgery. This is you know literally minutes before he's going to be whisked back to the OR, and and this this anesthesia resident just freaks out and says, "We got to cancel this." And, and ultimately, you know, it came down to, okay, why are you thinking that? The anesthesia um, attending, and I actually walked in the room at the same time, and we said, so, so why are you, you know, saying that we need to cancel this? And, and he says, well, you know, I mean, the risk is so high. And it comes down to, well, what if he understands his risks and he's still choosing to go ahead? And these are risks that we can't actually fix by waiting. And... And it was great because then the resident sort of, you know, puts his guess at what, what he thinks the, the risk of dying during the surgery might be. And Robert pipes in, well, I signed up for more than that, so let's get on with this. And, and it was amazing because by not sugarcoating things, by not just glossing over things and making them look better than they were, by being brutally honest about what he was facing, it really enabled him to be confident in the midst of that terrible uncertainty and really enabled him to make this decision and even almost talk, talk his family and this resident off the ledge and say, hey, we signed up for this. You know, we get it. We understand. We've talked about it. We've thought about it. We've rethought about it. And, and we know we're deciding, and we realize that it's high stakes. We can't change that bit of it, but we can go forward with our eyes wide open. Mm. And, and that, I think, is, is really, really what we hope for. What I hope for from this book is that more people will ask for that kind of information, will ask those kinds of questions. And uh, the other part of this story, which struck me, and you write about this throughout the book, doctors make decisions in teams, 
and uh, families do as well. This is, this is a family thing. Robert had to reassure his wife. His wife was involved in the decision, his son, and, uh, and the fact that you as doctors are making those decisions as a team. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, I, I think that one of the things in medicine that it is a frequent push recently is saying, well, when we can't get things more accurate or more correct, let's at least try to be consistent. Let's at least try to do things the same way every time. And so, you know, every organization is coming out with their guidelines and protocols for every disease. I'm not a huge fan of guidelines and protocols because I think they sometimes make very gray things look more black and white than they really are. But another way at getting at consistency is to use a group. And so, you know, in the world of cancer care, we have these, treatment planning conferences or multidisciplinary tumor boards, as they're often called, um, where you'll have a team of people, and it'll include people from different specialties, and they will discuss, you know, all the cancers of, of some, you know, in a big cancer center like, like Huntsman, they'll, just, they'll have one meeting to discuss all the skin cancers, another one to discuss all the colon cancers, all the breast cancers, and all these different, these different groups will meet. And I don't think that these groups necessarily do a better job of being more accurate or more correct, there, there still is this uncertainty in medicine. But I think that having that group discuss things does help us be a bit more consistent. Because some of the sort of personalities and you know, spikes of, of interest in this direction or that direction are kind of you know, taken out in the muddle. You know, as, as, as people discuss things, things become calm and rational and careful in a way that I think, I think is very good. I mean, that's, that's, that's one way that medicine tries to manage what we don't know, but it's, it's only one way. We're talking with Dr. Kevin Jones on the program. His new book is What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. Many stories in the book uh, illustrating uh, the very critical conversations that patients and doctors have, and Dr. Jones is uh, trying to make this conversation more honest and uh, open. Uh, We're going to take a brief break. When we come back in the final segment, we'll uh, have Dr. Jones tell us some questions that he suggests we ask our physicians. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Human Resources. It is also made possible in part by the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's The Tempest, with seven other productions June through October in 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. We're spending the hour with Dr. Kevin Jones, an orthopedic surgeon and researcher at Huntsman Cancer Institute and uh, Primary Children's Medical Center. His new book is What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. And we've been uh, having Dr. Jones tell us uh, some of the stories. Uh, we're talking about improving conversations, these critical conversations between doctors and their patients, uh, to empower patients uh, to, uh, to take charge of their health care. Uh, I noticed, Dr. Jones, uh, at the end of each chapter, there are specific questions that you uh, suggest that uh, we ask our physicians. Uh, we obviously don't have time for all of those, but uh, maybe uh, grouping these just briefly in uh, in the groupings that you have them in diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis, uh, what are some of the uh, critical questions that you suggest we ask? Yeah, so I, I think the fundamental goal of any of these questions is the same, and that goal is 
help me understand what you're thinking. You're asking the physician to have a dialogue, to have a conversation, to explain how the physician is arriving at the recommendations he or she is making. Because I guarantee that physician is weighing different options. May not tell you those options unless you ask. And so the, the goal is to ask. And so, you know, some things in terms of diagnosis, one, one question I write is, if I am determined to do my part to get better as a patient, what will that look like? What can I do to help? Another one is, with whom will you discuss my case? I mean, the physicians talk about things with other physicians. They, they try to do it in a very private way. They, this is not about you know, exposing your social security number or phone number, things like that, but they do talk about cases. And that, that is, it is one of the sort of elements of camaraderie in medicine is we, is we talk about things with each other, trying to, trying to understand things, trying to, trying to get better and get, get other insights. And ask your physician, you know, with whom will you discuss my case? You know, uh, another one in terms of diagnosis is really trying to improve this conversation and asking something like, will you please summarize or repeat back to me what you have heard from me? I tell a story in the book about how one case went disastrously wrong for quite a while because of one word being misunderstood that a patient had said that was just mistaken for another word. And so really trying to open up that conversation. And the flip side of that as well, a patient asking, may I summarize what I have heard from you? to make sure that we are both on the same page. I think that's really, really important, trying to, trying to make sure that the lines of communication are open and clear from both directions, because they're both critically important. By the way, um, before we go yeah. to, to treatment, uh, I think a lot of us, our experience is uh, your time with the physician is very brief. Can you, can you be assertive as a patient and ask for more time? I absolutely think you can. Now, I, I think you have to be careful with that. There's no doubt that physicians are busy as is everyone, you know. I, I don't. I think that some of the physician busyness is a is an almost you know created phenomenon. But physicians are busy, as everyone's busy. So be respectful of that. I don't think that patients should come in with with twenty questions. I think they should try to come in with one question. And I think that the kinds of changes in conversations that I would like to see don't take a long time. It, it's a change in the character of the conversation. It's simply saying after being told, well, this is what we're going to do. What else did you think about along the way? You know, that, that's, the, that's the, the key of this. And, and I think that most physicians can then, most will actually welcome the opportunity to step down from that pedestal and say, okay, yeah, let, let me tell you, I thought about this option and this option. I don't like those for this reason, and this is why I came to this. That adds three or four sentences. It, it doesn't add 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that the, the fear about time is, is somewhat fabricated. You know, mm-hmm. th- this shouldn't take that much time. And if you really encounter a physician who is unwilling to answer questions or even accept questions, find another physician. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's no reason why you are completely tied to one physician. No matter what anybody tells you, there are definitely options available. Uh, speaking of time, we're coming down to the end of our time here. Just a couple of minutes left. What are some other questions that uh, are especially important that we could ask? I, th- I think the one that's really important is to ask your physician where do you stand along the spectrum in your field on this topic, whatever it is? You know, so if you're, if you're undertaking some new treatment, there's going to be a range of options that is considered you know, in the field, and most physicians will stand somewhere in that spectrum. They may tend more toward this side or that side, but most are also aware of where they are in that spectrum. 
I think that's a really important question to ask. And, and again, it just, it just opens up this, okay, tell me how you're thinking. Um, that's, that's one. Another one is, is just, if I were your neighbor, to whom would you send me to sort out my problem? You know, if, if, if we're dealing with a problem that, that specific physician it's not in their field of expertise and they're saying, you know, we need some other opinion, ask them, who would you want to send me to? If I, if I were your relation or your neighbor or your friend, you know, that getting at where are quality physicians, that's a, that's a tough thing to get at. But, but physicians sometimes know. I think another thing in terms of um, looking at the range of outcomes is to ask, what is the range of possible outcomes for my conditions that I can prepare for the extremes as well as the average? And this really just gets at the concept that, that what we know in medicine at our, at our best is known in terms of populations, and yet we apply it one person at a time. You know, if someone has a 30% chance of something or other happening, it's either going to be 100% or 0%, not 30%. And so, you know, I think asking about what is the range, what, it, what are the extremes of outcomes that could happen from this, and, and then what is the average, then what is the, the normal sort of bullet point that you're going to tell people. And uh, we'll have to leave it there out of time, but uh, don't worry. If you've been jotting those questions down, you can go to the website, which is doctorscannottellyou.com, and under Clarity Cues, uh, there are all these questions. And, of course, uh, stories and uh, a lot of great information is in the book, and that's available from that website and at many other places as well. What Doctors Cannot Tell You, Clarity, Confidence, and Uncertainty in Medicine. Dr. Kevin Jones, researcher and uh, orthopedic surgeon at uh, Primary Children's Medical Center and Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah. has been our guest. Dr. Jones, pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tom. And uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow uh, for Access Utah. Thanks for joining us today. Are you looking for clear and concise car advice? Look straight down and you should see gas come out like it's coming out of a water pistol. If you can't see, don't light a match. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to put a little more gas in the car, Sure, in fact, while you're at it, pour some, pour some on the seats. Pour some on the seats, too. <laughs> Join us again as we remind folks that it's only a car. This week on Car Talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.